0: Tennessee. 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 Lord, I've really been real Hi everybody, welcome back to another Tennessee Holler Facebook Live. I'm Holler founder Justin Canoe. We're at tnholler.com. At the TN Holler on Twitter and Facebook is where you can find us. Please subscribe to us there, chip in, it all really helps. You can also follow at Chattanooga Holler, or at Nuga Holler, at Memphis Holler, and at Knoxville Holler. We've been growing lately. It's been going great, and that's all thanks to you. Thank you so much. We get right to it today, we have a really special guest, one that I'm very excited about. Professor Stephanie Kelton is here with us. Stephanie, how are you today?
1: I'm fine. How are you?
0: I'm good. So I'm just going to do a little bit of a... a set the stage here. Here in Tennessee, we are constantly told that the federal government is running out of money. We're constantly told that we can't invest in ourselves. We're constantly told the government is broke. The Green New Deal is a joke. We can't have Medicare for all. We can't have Medicaid expansion. We give up a billion dollars a year here in Tennessee of our own federal tax dollars because of it. So many things that we don't do and we suffer here in Tennessee for that We are at the bottom in infant mortality, at the bottom in maternal mortality, at the bottom in poverty, at the bottom in medical medical bankruptcies, at the bottom in rural hospital closures per capita. And you have a book that is just now out called The Deficit Myth that essentially lays out this philosophy that you seem to live by from what I could tell called the modern monetary theory. Can we start by setting up what is the myth?
1: Sure. Thank you um, for inviting me to be on your show. It's nice to be with you. So um, I wish that there was just one myth, because it would be a lot easier if all we had to do was take out one myth. Unfortunately, you know, I call the book The Deficit Myth, but it's really a web of entangled myths, and you just ran through uh, many of them. And so let's start with, I guess, the biggest one, and it's where I start in the first chapter of the book. And you mentioned uh, being told that the government is out of money, okay? So that's sort of one of the places we wanna start. We wanna start thinking about what our currency system looks like, what our monetary system looks like, where the dollar comes from, and why in fact the federal government is very different from a household or a private business or even state and local government. So one of the biggest myths that we hear from politicians, and even from journalists and people in the media, is that um, the federal government should really try to run its budget the way that any of us have to run our budgets, that it should follow the same sort of good housekeeping, balance the budget, avoid taking on debt, um, and, you know, live within your means. Don't spend more than you bring in. All those sorts of things are what I talk about in the first chapter of the book, where I say, you know, don't think of a household. The the where everything goes off the rails when we start talking about government um, money or public finances is when we start with the idea that the government's budget is supposed to operate like a household budget. So that's myth number one.
0: So my understanding of what you mean by that is the government household budget. We spend money. That's like we're losing money, right? We we're subtracting that, but. In actuality, when you come, when it comes to the federal government, what we're actually doing is sort of pulling from one pot and adding to the other, and it's not really a negative. It's actually, in a lot of ways, a positive. It really depends on how you spend the money. Like, not all deficits are bad. That's the seems to be the fundamental underlying thing here. So, for instance, in this pandemic that we're in, with so many people suffering, and we're being told, "Oh, we can't have another trend," of money or You know, the money that we're spending is going to make our kids grow broke. What you're essentially saying is, no, that's not the way to think about it. The way to think about it is we're pulling from our pot. The federal government can actually create money. We've seen it whenever they want to spend money on wars or corporate tax deductions. They can spend money when they want to it's a matter of spending it in the right place that actually stimulates our economy is that is that about right from a basic level like we That's think about it wrong
1: perfect from a basic level you know the the key distinction between the federal government and all the rest of us and i say this in the first chapter of the book is that the federal government is the issuer of our currency. It is the issuer of the US dollar. See, you and I aren't allowed to create the dang thing. And if we could, then right now, you mentioned the pandemic and the economic fallout, more than 40 million people losing jobs and so forth. If we could all create the currency, well, there'd be no problem. People would meet their rent payment. Nobody would be struggling to buy food. States and local governments wouldn't be begging the federal government for assistance if they could create the dollar, but we can't. Private businesses wouldn't need small business loans. and The Fed wouldn't have to bend over backwards to get liquidity to everyone. The problem is all the rest of us are what, I, what we call currency users. The federal government is the issuer, not the user of the dollar. And that means it can never run out of money, it can never be forced into bankruptcy, like Greece, and we'll probably end up talking about that. But the federal government can run its budget and needs to run its budget, unlike the way the rest of us have to run our budgets. And so uh you're absolutely right that right, what the federal government has the capacity to do is spend money it does not have. Okay, and it's in fact, the act of spending that brings that money into existence, it creates it. The government doesn't reach into a bucket and grab dollars from someplace and then spend them or distribute them into the economy. Congress authorizes spending like the CARES Act, $2.2 trillion, right? Congress said, we're gonna spend a couple of trillion dollars to deal with the coronavirus pandemic and the ailing economy. Where are we gonna get that money? We're gonna get it through the public purse, right? Through the fact that Congress can commit to spending dollars it
0: does not have. Why? Because it's the issuer of the currency. Okay. So I, I'm trying to play the skeptic. First of all, I want people to do a second advise Bernie. You are listed as one of the top 100 uh, most influential women in finance by Barron's. You have cred here, and feel free to Google her. I put We put some in the description on the book. The book is highly touted by a lot of really smart people and modern monetary theory is, ha- is sort of having its moment right now because this pandemic has held up a mirror to our society and forced us essentially to start exercises. Thing. People who are laughing at this theory are now pushing this theory in some ways. So I want people to know that this is not a pipe dream. This is really taking place right now. But what I want to ask you, Stephanie, is obviously, or not obviously, maybe not obviously, it would seem logical that there is a limit to this, that you cannot just print money and throw money out and just make piles of money without there being an impact. My understanding, and again, I'm not an economist and I have followed you, but you know, I don't claim to be an expert on this. My understanding is the limit shows up in inflation. Like when we have inflation and when dollars actually start to be worth less, That is really the limit, not the deficit, not the debt, not the amount of money that we spend. It's about the relationship to what we can afford and what we can buy. Is that about right?
1: Sure. And we want the money that Congress is authorizing to have an impact. We want it to have an impact, right? We want it to help keep people attached to their employers and on payroll. We want it to help uh, people stay current on their rent and avoid uh, being evicted and so forth. We want the the federal government's assistance to have an impact. You are right to say that there are limits. So let's talk about those limits. So the House has recently passed uh, the Heroes Act. Right? They want to authorize another three trillion dollars in support for the economy. Okay, that's that would be another three trillion. That's a pretty that's a pretty generous amount to move forward with. The Senate has said, no, at least they're not prepared to, to move on that. So the question is, since Congress could pass that bill, the Senate could agree with the House, they could move this piece of legislation through, the president could sign it and bingo, we would have another $3 trillion of support for our economy. The question is, would that be too much? Is Would that put us at risk somehow? And you mentioned inflation. So that is the relevant question, that is the relevant constraint. If Congress author- authorized this 3 trillion, do I believe that it would cause inflation to accelerate to 4 5, you know, some kind of the the Fed's target is 2%. Would we get crushing inflation if Congress moved this bill? I think absolutely not. And we could safely do that because conditions are so depressed in our economy that the economy could safely absorb another $3 trillion in support. In fact, it would be helpful. It would truncate the recession. It would help with the recovery. We would have a much better economy if we did this. And and by the way, it includes a trillion dollars of support to go to state and local governments, which is desperately needed. So, So let's say we do that. Let's say the Senate uh, comes to its senses, passes this bill, we get another three trillion and the unemployment rate begins to come down. But let's say six months from now, the unemployment rate is still 10 percent, 12 percent. Is there room for Congress to do more? And I would say yes. You know, the, the limits are in our real economy. Once you get your economy operating at full employment again and there are no idle resources left to be put to use then any additional spending will carry inflation risk, but we're nowhere near that point.
0: It's almost like because of the pushback to this theory, it has created all of this room to actually implement it. Like the austerity measures that have been taken have made it so that there is so much room to put money in because we've been spending ourselves, mainly because Republicans have been in control of the purse strings and actually the narrative more importantly, and frankly, so have Democrats in a lot of ways. Like this is a bipartisan issue. There are plenty of Democrats who will parrot the line about the deficit and the debt. And, and frankly, I think in good faith in some ways, like I know a lot of people who genuinely are concerned about that. And they do think it's a problem because they don't think about it this way. So I guess my question to you would be, how do you talk to somebody who good faith having the argument with you that we need to stop our spending, our deficit and our debt is out of control. It's not not always Marsha Blackburn that says that it's also Democrats and people who truly believe that we're mortgaging our children's future by spending. It's not young people. Young people are like, spend, we won't help us out. Don't worry, we'll tax the rich later. But there are some good faith people who are like, you know what? Our debt and our deficit is out of control. We do need to curb our spending. I mean, even Nancy Pelosi has talked about a balanced budget amendment. So how do you have this conversation with good faith people? Well,
1: in good faith. I mean, you're you're absolutely right. The, a lot of Did the people you? who you know espouse these talking points and take these positions, and you mentioned um, Nancy Pelosi. You know, she's someone who, as far as I'm aware, over the course of uh, her long career, has been pretty hawkish when it comes to the federal budget. She's she's been someone who I think genuinely believes that when Congress um, works to reduce budget deficits, that it's actually acting in the interest of the American people, that somehow deficits are in fact harmful. And, you know, addressing them, she sees, as um, a proper role for government, that it's actually helping to protect us from something that could hurt us. So when I talk with members in the House and in the Senate, I just go into it, you know, in good faith, trying to help give them a better understanding. And sometimes it's as simple as just reminding them, that you know, their deficits, or what they call their reading, are our financial surpluses. So think about this, okay. And when, when the, uh, Bill Clinton was in office, the federal government, for the first time in a very long time, the government's budget moved into surplus. okay? Democrats were very proud of this. They say, listen. We are the party that knows fiscal responsibility. These guys, these Republicans, all they ever do is add to the deficit and drive up the debt. We're the party that knows how to balance the budget and deliver surpluses. So it was a real badge of honor for them to be able to you know, stake out this, uh, this turf. But think about what a budget surplus means. A budget surplus means that the government is taxing away more dollars than it is spending back into the economy. So for the government's budget to go into surplus, they need to remove more dollars from us than they add back in by spending. Their budget moves into the black, but ours moves into the red. And sometimes we just don't think about those things, right? And if you don't
0: think about such a simple, basic thing that we don't think about.
1: That's right. So then then you say, well, what about a balanced budget? What That must be surely a good thing. So you say, okay, well, let's eliminate the surplus and just run a balanced budget, what they call living within your means, right? You don't spend a dime more than you take in in taxes. So now the government collects 100 from us, taxes it away, and spends 100 into the economy. So we have a balanced budget. But the impact on us is neutral. Some Parts of the economy gain a hundred, some parts of the economy lose a hundred, on balance it's a wash. But now watch what happens when the government's budget moves into deficit. That's the thing we're all supposed to be afraid of and against. Now the government runs a deficit. So it spends more dollars into the economy, than it subtracts away through taxation. So let's say they spend a hundred in, but they only tax 90 away. So somebody writes down on the government's books minus 10 and they say government budget is in deficit and everybody gets mad because this is an awful thing. What they fail to recognize is that there's a plus 10 now on the non-government part of the budget, right? That's our black ink. And so sometimes, you know, just helping them to see that, that if your goal is to try to shrink the deficit, the budget deficit. Your goal is to try to shrink our surpluses. That's what you're trying to do. And then they just sort of, and I said, why would you want to do that? You know? Um, so, so that's just so, part so. of the way to communicate, to help them see. a little
0: I think that's, that's really helpful. Uh, I just want to take one of the questions that uh, one of the viewers is asking. What's the difference between deficit and debt? I'll just try to sum it up really quickly. The debt is a summation of our yearly deficit. So the deficit is year to year. Uh, how much we spend versus how much we spend in the government. And the debt is sort of the running tally of all of the deficits. Does that sound about right?
1: Yeah. The deficit is something you measure on an annual basis, like you said, y- yearly. So the deficit in economic jargon we say is a flow concept and the debt is a stop concept. The debt is something that you can measure at a point in time. Like I can stop the clock right now. And in fact, there is a debt clock that ticks through real time. So you could look at the national debt and you could say what it is at exactly this moment. You can't look at the deficit and say what it is at exactly this moment. You have to wait. So we measure it over the course of a calendar year or a fiscal year as the difference between how much the government spends and how much it collects in taxes and other fees and payments and so forth. So uh, yeah, the debt accumulates over time, and it's a historical record of all the past years that the government spent more dollars into the economy than it subtracted away, and that those dollars are being held in the form of U.S. treasuries. So the national debt is the sum total of the outstanding U.S. government bonds called treasury securities. There's part of someone's wealth or
0: so it- you know, I mentioned that this is on both sides, that there are good faith Democrats that are afraid of running up the deficit and the debt. But also there are some bad faith arguments yeah, against this. And generally speaking, the motto or the mantra or the uh overarching agenda, I guess I would say, Republican Party is to shrink government. They want smaller government, they want less taxes. And so in that way, us waking up to the idea that you're talking about is their worst nightmare because they need us to be afraid of the deficit. They need us to be afraid of the debt. They need to be able to point to this as why we have not expanded Medicaid in Tennessee and we lose a billion dollars a year and people are dying because of it very directly. They need to be able to justify that financially. And so for us to wake up and say, hey, guys, wait a minute, actually... The deficit is not even the thing that you think it is. That is a big, very powerful thing. And that is why they point to this and they laugh at this theory. In fact, there is enough merit to it. But where it gets a little complicated, and I, I would ask you to uh, elaborate on this a little bit, is not all deficits are the same, right? Like, yes, the deficit, if we were to spend on infrastructure and if we were to spend on rural broadband for everybody and Medicare for all and things that help people, which then stimulates the economy. That's one kind of deficit. But then there's another kind of deficit, which is spending on war in foreign countries or tax cuts. So essentially letting running it to let people keep $2 trillion more of their money, that is not necessarily a great deficit because of where it goes. And it just so happens that those are the deficits that the Republican Party, especially, and also some Democrats, I will keep saying, are fine with. So how do we Make it more clear to people, and especially when it's happening, the difference between good deficits and bad deficits.
1: Okay. So I always say every deficit is good for someone. That's the first place to start because, you know, we have to get over this aversion to the idea of a deficit in and of itself. Okay. Every deficit is good for someone. You just mentioned the $2 trillion tax cuts. So the Republicans passed these. Uh, in uh, December of 2017, right? And we now know that those tax cuts are going to add something like $2 trillion to deficits over the course of the next 10 years. You're right that uh, Republicans are extremely hypocritical when it comes to deficits. They're terrible when Democrats want to do something, everything, everything has to be paid for. Uh, when it's their turn, they just uh, ignore all of that and gleefully add to the deficit provided that it uh, serves their agenda. And their agenda in this case was to send a financial windfall to the people who least need the help in this country. So you got corporate tax cuts, and you got personal income tax cuts. But on the personal income tax side, our side, 83% 83% of the benefits went to people in the top 1% of the income distribution. Those people didn't need the help. So it's about how you want to orient the government deficit. Do you want to do things like you mentioned, infrastructure investment, where a lot of people would get jobs in construction and engineering and architects and manufacturing, people who, you know, make and produce um heavy equipment that's used to build things. Those people would all benefit from that kind of investment, uh, even if it was, you know, deficit spending? Um, Or do you want to use the deficit to deliver a financial windfall to people who least need the help or to, you know, fund endless wars or whatever the case is? But the, the first thing to recognize is every deficit is good for somebody.
0: I think that's so important because, and that's now, I mean, not that I didn't understand it before, but it's very clearly why you called your book what you called it. Because what we really have to do The core of this discussion is change our associations with the word deficit. Right now, when we think of a deficit, we're thinking of one side of the equation. But what we're not thinking of is the other side of that equation, that it's going somewhere. It doesn't just evaporate. When we spend the money, it doesn't just disappear. If we spend the money in the right place, it goes somewhere that can be really beneficial and, in fact, exponentially so. And stimulate the economy. So when Marcia Blackburn, I'm going to keep using her because she is my reason for living. Uh, when she talks about the deficit and when she uses it as this curse word, frankly, she is fundamentally misunderstanding what that is. And so are people who support her and parrot the things that she says. So when you hear in a conversation about the deficit, carry this with you deficits are not always bad. So I want to ask you now if that's all right. And I know I've taken a lot of your time and I appreciate you doing it. uh, What are some things you were just in the most progressive campaign this country has ever seen? What are some things that you think we should be doing with that money that make for good deficits?
1: Well, I I mean, for me right now, the priorities are to try to the extent that we're able to do so to prevent future job losses, to keep workers attached to their employers, keep them on payroll, avoid, to the extent possible, the shuttering of millions of small businesses across this country, to deal with the food crisis that millions of Americans are facing, the housing and rent crisis. So we've got to do something to keep people with enough income so that they can stay in their homes, afford to buy food, stay current on their bills, stay attached to their jobs. And there are a, a lot of different um, pieces of legislation out there you referenced, um, maybe without saying the name of Senator Sanders. Um, uh, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib,
0: they have- Not intentionally, by the way.
1: No, no, no. Uh, I, I didn't. <laughs> okay. I, I was going to volunteer it. That's all. Uh, there, are, there are great bills in Congress right now that would address a lot of these problems. A, to state and local governments, absolutely right near the top of my list. That is critical in this moment. And then looking longer term. So those are some short term crisis management things that we have to do. But looking longer term, We are going to be in a situation where millions and millions of people who lost jobs in this downturn are not going to get those jobs back and they might not get any jobs back. So I think we have to start thinking about what we're going to do to prevent 10 million or more, 20 million people from ending up uh, unemployed for six months, a year or even longer. And one of the things we could do is take advantage of all of these resources that are available and start getting to work on the climate crisis, start building green infrastructure, green, sustainable housing. I mean, you know, when the health pandemic crisis is over, and I hope it, it will be um, sooner rather than later, we have another crisis in our midst. And we were already uh, in the grips of a climate crisis. So I think that we can use this as in some sense an opportunity to um, we've got all these freed up resources available and the government can begin to invest in uh projects and programs and hire workers directly to help build what in the book I I call a care economy. We can care for our communities. We can care for our people, elder care, child care, caring for the planet. So um, there's a lot we can do.
0: Do you see this as tied? uh, I know that, I, I believe that you're a proponent of the federal jobs guarantee which to me makes a lot of sense. I know people have an issue with universal basic income because they just see, think of it as free money, and that's a whole other discussion. But federal jobs guarantee guarantee that people who want a job and have it doing the things that you're talking about, taking care of people, rebuilding our infrastructure, building uh, rural broadband out, taking care of our elderly. A federal jobs guarantee is something that FDR was in favor of, Martin Luther King was in favor of. Uh, can you just tell me briefly why you support – uh, I'm Get behind it like a month ago, which kind of blew my mind because he's not a guy that I would have thought. Mark Cuban.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, that's right. I saw that too. Yeah. I mean, it's pragmatic.
0: Oh,
1: I, uh, I think Mark, can is you a just pragmatic. tell me like, yeah, yeah, sure. I can, I can tell you kind of sketch it out. I think Mark Cuban is a pragmatic guy. And I think he sees what I just described, which is a, a future in which you could be looking at tens of millions of Americans. Who are stranded on the sidelines, who don't have an opportunity, a way to contribute, even though they want in and they want to be working and doing something. So Mark said, hire them and put them to work. And he mentioned things like contact tracing and some of that. We could do that in the near term, but longer term those jobs should be oriented the way that you just described, in the way that FDR did it. You know, he uh, FDR had an alphabet soup of public service employment. Programs like the Works Progress Administration that built hospitals and infrastructure, public infrastructure, did performing arts. You know, everything under the sun that you could imagine. The CCC was the Civilian Conservation Corps. That was really green and environmental sort of jobs. The National Youth Administration, jobs for young people. Look at the streets today, right? We do not want to be in a situation where millions and millions of young people have lost their jobs, can't afford to go to college, and can't get reemployed. We don't want that future. That brings obvious, that carries obvious consequences. You're going to have social unrest, you're going to have people uh, agitating, you're going to have suffering, and so forth. So a job guarantee would be the federal government creating a public option in the labor market. We talk about a public option in health care all the time. You know, if you want government health care, you sign up and you get health care and the government pays for it. Well, the job guarantee is a public option in the labor market. If you can't find employment anywhere else in the economy, but you want to work, you have a guaranteed job created for you and the federal government pays the wage. That's what it is. And, w- and then those jobs are oriented around the kind of, uh, kinds of things I described a moment ago, um, care work and caring for planet and community and people and so forth.
0: And, and I, you know, I just want people to think about that for a second, because what that does is it provides a real bottom, a real minimum wage, and it would actually pay for itself in a lot of ways, not every way. And that's where the MMT come on theory, and it was money for sure. But you'd have less people on unemployment. You'd have less people in jail. You'd have less need for law enforcement. You'd have less need for food stamps. So there are things that we give to people and 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 some of the safety that we provide that would not be necessary if everybody was working, which is at the end of the day, what Republicans tell everybody to go do and you know what everybody what we value in this country. So I think a federal jobs guarantee is a really interesting idea. I think obviously there would be a lot of details that need fleshing out. But we need to think bigger in this country than we are right now. We are losing the fight to the people at the top, to the wealthiest in this country. And I think we're in a moment right now where we can mobilize and motivate and organize to push the things like Stephanie has been talking about for a really long time, like Bernie ran on, like AOC touts everywhere she goes, like Reverend Dr. Barber talks about everywhere he goes. So I would encourage everybody to follow all the people I just mentioned, follow at Stephanie on Twitter and Facebook, get her book, The Deficit Myth. Which is just brand new and out. I haven't read a book in a really long time. I am definitely reading this one. I'm in the process of reading it right now, and I, I really appreciate you coming on here and doing this. Is there anything you want to leave people with here in Tennessee as as a final thought?
1: I think about you folks there and all of the rest of us, and I, I hope that you know at some point. And thank you, Justin, for doing your part to try to you know impart a better understanding for people because. We really have been sold a bill of goods in terms of what the federal government is capable of doing. And it's going to take an awful lot of us coming to terms with this. And, you know, when your local member of Congress comes back to their district and you show up and you start asking about why hasn't there been an expansion of Medicaid or why has not whatever it is. And they say, oh, I'd love to do those sort of things. But, you know, we have this deficit and so we can't afford to. It'd be great if you guys could you know, let them know that you know better and they're not going to pull the wool over your eyes and um, and start, you know, asking Congress to use the budget in the service of the people because that's who they're supposed to be there to represent.
0: Absolutely. And and I think, you know, one way to pin them down on that is just say, okay, what's a, what's a good level of debt deficit and why? And they won't have an answer for that. All they're doing is selling us the line that deficit and debt is bad and this theory that there's another side to that equation, which when you think about it, even for half a second is very clear and obvious that yes. Oh, right. The money's going somewhere. That's a really important thing to carry with us. So I appreciate you coming on here and doing that. And uh, please keep in touch. And, you know, I would love to maybe ha- have you on down the line and good luck with the book.
1: Thank you, Justin. Let me know if you run again. <laughs> I will.
0: I think I'm doing more good with, with the holler honestly right. right now, okay. but maybe maybe one day. You you. are.
1: You're doing great. Thank you so much.